Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 26 of We Effed Up. I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And once again, we are here on our bi-weekly mission to tell you about times in history where we effed up. What are we talking about this time, Cody? Uh, we're talking about something that every American knows about, learns about in school. How an F up led to, as FDR put it, a day of infamy. Is it the Troubles? No, it's not the Troubles. Can we talk about the Troubles already? The more you ask about it, the less we're, the, the, the further away that episode. If if I can find something about it, okay. Okay, so is this another Ireland episode? No. Oh, okay. That was last episode. Every American learns. Uh, okay. And that wasn't last episode. Last episode was dub music. It's been a couple episodes. All right. Yeah. Well. Okay, well, what? so what What specifically are we talking about? You couldn't get it from the hints I just gave? No. A day of infamy? You're looking at me like the I'm... The FDR sp- impression I just gave? I, I heard I heard it. Pearl but, Harbor? Oh, that's right. Okay, I remember now that you told me that. Okay. I don't know about the day of infamy thing, though. Yeah, that was the speech he gave the next day. Oh, okay. I, I, I imagine you've heard it at some point. Okay. I watched the movie. Is it in the movie? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know. I I watched the movie like once in fourth grade at a sleepover, and I didn't. I do not. I did not absorb any of it. Good because it's garbage. Okay. Um, go watch if you want to watch Pearl Harbor movie. Go watch Tora Tora Tora. That's um, old. That's old. Yeah, and it's good. Okay. All right. Newer is not necessarily better. More explosions. That doesn't necessarily make it better. <laughs> I'm being facetious. I'm, I'm just dragging you on. Go okay. ahead. As you always do. <laughs> anyway, so, as always, a little bit of background before we get to Pearl Harbor. So you need to know the situation kind of in the Pacific region. Mm-hmm. So throughout the 1930s, Japan, uh, and I didn't know if you knew this, Teresa, Japan was involved in Pearl Harbor. Yes, I was aware. Throughout the 1930s, Japan had become increasingly dominated by military and ultra-nationalist forces, like pushing them more towards a more aggressive stance uh, in the world. Right, and that's predicated by the fact that China had come in and hadn't China invaded Japan prior to this? And several, several centuries before, yes, but no. Am I thinking the? Is it the opposite that Japan invaded China? We'll get to that. Oh, okay. Yes. All right. So I just had it backwards. <laughs> yes. Okay. Very backwards. Whoops. Um. So these forces, they believe Japan had the right to dominate and rule over East Asia. Uh, expansionism was also rooted in economic policy, as Japan required more and more raw materials to further build its economy and fuel its war machine. Of course. So, like, the bigger the war machine gets, the more materials they need. The more materials they get, the bigger the war machine. It's like this sure. vicious cycle here. Yeah. Uh, in 1931, Japan invaded and conquered the Chinese region of Manchuria mm-hmm. and set up the puppet state of Manchukuo. This enabled Japan to gain a larger foothold in mainland Asia as well as access to raw materials. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a colonization effort was undertaken to populate the region with Japanese settlers. Okay. Again, emulating the West. Right. Uh, in 1937, Japan invaded the rest of China, 
looking to take advantage of the ongoing Chinese civil war between the nationalists and the communists. Mm, so. Of course, like you do, you take care, you, uh, uh, <laughs> you invade an already besieged country. Yes. Um, yeah, like and you so do. The picture I'm showing you now is kind of like Japan's expansionism before Pearl Harbor. So like before like World War One, it was just Japan, Taiwan, and Korea. That's all okay. Japan owned. Okay. So, like, prior to war, the Second World War, it has all these shaded areas. So, like, these massive chunks of China, a lot of these uh, islands in the Pacific. Okay. So, it's, like, it's expanding. It's, like, you see, like, French Indochina, which is, like, Vietnam, mm-hmm. Laos, that area. I had no idea. Yeah. I had zero zero idea. Um, I knew about the rape of Nanking, but I... We're getting to that. Okay. Yeah, so, like, they, they, they take control of, like, more and more areas in... Um, in, the, in East Asia. And, of course, like, being with feet on the ground and people who are actually settled in those parts of Asia, of course, will make it easier for you to continue moving forward and putting yeah. more people there, etc. So, yeah. uh, Japan uh, in China took many coastal regions and cities, including Beijing, Shanghai, and Nanjing. So it's taking, like, the most, like, large industrial areas, like the cities, mm-hmm. they're taking those coastal areas. Um Japanese forces committed horrendous atrocities, such as the infamous Rape of Nanjing, where over 200,000 civilians were killed and over 20,000 were raped. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely brutal stuff. I'm not going to go into detail of it here, because it is... Randomly, I I had heard the term before, but I didn't really know the specifics, but this is totally random. One time, I, I follow this pawn shop on TikTok, And the guy was like, hey, I saw this thing. I just got this thing. Somebody came in to me and wants to sell it, but I don't even know the first thing about what to do with it. What do I do? And he basically explained what it was. And it was a a British, the photographs of a British soldier who came into Nanjing after the rape of Nanjing, like immediately after, like a couple of hours after and took photos of this stuff and the photos were still like intact and available. And this is stuff that I guess, I don't know if this is true. Maybe you can speak to the accuracy of this, but um, according to this guy, he said that the research that he had done, Japan had destroyed a lot of the records of when, when this happened. Mm -hmm. Um, So like there aren't a lot of photographs that exist of what happened and probably shouldn't be because it's really terrible. But this person being a being a soldier and having his camera with him is like, oh, I'm going to take pictures of all this stuff and then bring it home. And he did. And the the cool ending of this story is that the guy convinced the person who brought them in not to sell them and to give them to a museum for archiving purposes. He did post some of the photos on Twitter, though, because that's like basically the only place that you can have this stuff. Yeah. Um, and it was pretty awful. I, my curiosity got the best of me, and I looked at the pictures, and they're really, it's, really terrible. Yeah, like, some of the stories are... But I do think that, although, would I say that it should be taught in its entirety to, you know, like, I think we did World War World War Two in high school in my American history class, um, or even world history... Should it be taught in its entirety? No, but do should we just you know sweep it under the rug and just yeah. be like it was really really bad? 
I don't think so. I think that that encourages people to just be like, oh yeah, it was bad. And then put it like categorize it in another part of their mind and just kind of sequester that part and just be like, yeah, it was bad without really understanding like how bad. Yeah. Um, Japan's atrocities in China prior to American involvement in World War II. I don't even remember talking about that at all in high school. Yeah. Which is ridiculous because it's like you, this is stuff that you should be taught. Like like you said, should not go into detail over it. Like if you want more detail, you can look into it yourself. Yeah. But you should, the emphasis should be on how horrible it was. Yeah. So, but anyway, we're not talking about the rape and Andrew. Continue. Um, Japan, uh, it, it nearly entered into a conflict with the Soviet Union, but that was averted after some brief border clashes in 1939. Uh, they signed a non-aggression pact, uh, which lasted pretty much through the entirety of World War II, almost towards the end. Wow. Um, which, considering the fact that Japan was on the Axis side, and mm-hmm. Soviet Union was on the Allied side, Soviet Union only got involved in Japan, I think it was, I don't remember if it was after the bombing of Hiroshima or the bombing of, um, of Nagasaki. So, like, extremely late in the war. Yeah. So. Almost at the end. Yeah. Wow. Um, Japan signed the Tripartite Pact with Germany and Italy in September 1940, joining the Axis powers. Mm-hmm. So, World War One's or World War Two's already been going on for a year at this point. Mm-hmm. Um. I didn't know about the Tripartite. Yeah. Um. Yeah, Germany was pretty much on its own until, I think, like, March of 1940 is when Italy finally joined in. And then Japan didn't join in until 1941. But again, it had also it had been in conflict with China for years at this point. Mm-hmm. So, but um, but yeah, Japan did not immediately join in the war against uh, what was at the time the lone Allied power, the UK, because mm-hmm. uh, France had fallen in May. Yeah, Japan did not join in against what was the lone Allied power at the time, the UK. France had fallen in May of 1940. Much of Europe was under Nazi control. Or was neutral, um, so UK was it. Um, after the conquest of French Indochina mm-hmm. uh, and reports of growing atrocities in China, the U.S. and other Pacific powers began to place economic sanctions on Japan. Okay. So, uh, like I said, France had fallen in May. It was replaced by the Vichy government, the collaborationist mm-hmm. government with the Nazis. And Japan was like, eh, yeah, we'll, we'll take Indochina off your hands for you. <laughs> so, um, these embargoes uh, pushed Japan to be in planning for war against the colonial holdings in East Asia of the Western powers. So, like, the U.S. has Guam and the Philippines. Mm-hmm. The U.K. has um, Malaya, Singapore, uh, Hong Kong. Um, the Dutch have uh, the East Indies, what is, what is today Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Japan begins... Prepping for military operations against those places. Uh, meanwhile, in the United States... Meanwhile, in the United States... <laughs> Jesus. FDR has a plan. Oh my god. Beep, 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 Yeah, meanwhile, economic depression in the United States had med, led, med, led to many internal reforms. The New Deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, overall, unemployment fell, GDP rose, and a social safety net was established for vulnerable citizens. Social security. Yes. Uh, internal issues also contributed to Americans' isolationist stance, which yeah. had grown since World War One. Of like, course. 
We have our own stuff to deal with. We can't be worried about anybody else. Well, yeah, the Great we, Depression yeah, and... we can't get, be getting involved in external conflict. Finding soldiers places to work yep. after World War One, the baby boom. Uh, Congress passed several neutrality acts in the 1930s, uh, refusing to be drawn into international conflicts. Because uh, there are several that are kind of like in the lead up to World War II, World War Two, mm-hmm. like this aggression from Japan, Germany's saber rattling, and their taking of like Sudetenland and mm-hmm. Czechoslovakia. Italy is like they've invaded Ethiopia by now, and Albania, um, Spain just underwent a civil war and are now controlled by the fascists. Mm-hmm. Um, so. The United States is like, that seems like a whole mess. Yeah, We're like, going to stay over here. Yeah, it seems like stuff is starting to get a little bit out of hand. We're just going to stay put. What about military bases? Did we have a lot of military bases in other places oh, at no. this point? No. Okay. So we weren't stationed there, so... No, there's not, yeah, there's not like a... Not now, there's basically a base in every country. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, however, Franklin... President Franklin Roosevelt worked around the isolationist faction to give aid... Uh, some aid to the Allies and hindered the Axis. Mm-hmm. He saw which way the wind was blowing, but he couldn't really do much with public sentiment still favoring isolation. I cannot say that word. Isolationism. Um, in 1940, the United States began more robust war preparations, fearing that it might be drawn into the war anyway, mm-hmm. especially after the fall of France. Um, Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill agreed to um, a destroyers for bases deal. Basically, the U.S. was like, "Hey, Britain, here's some spare destroyers we have lying around. Uh, we'll take some. We'll, we'll we'll let us make use of some military bases you have around the world." Oh, okay. Because so, Britain at the time was just like, "We need things. We need war machines." Sure. <laughs> so because they're in the thick of it at this point. Yeah, they're the only one. Yeah. So, um, uh, Congress also passed the Lend Lease Act. In early okay. 1941, you probably heard of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first peacetime draft was instituted in September 1940. Which is hilarious that it was called a peacetime draft. Yeah. Peace for us, yeah. not for the rest um, of the yeah. world. Uh, with the patches of the Selective Trading and Service Act, which would later be redone into the Selective Service Act. Mm-hmm. Still exists today. Yep. A little bit more context for something else. Since shortly after its annexation by the United States in 1898... Hawaii had hosted a naval base at Pearl Harbor on the island of Oahu. Mm-hmm. I am well aware of that. Yes. My my dad was stationed in Hawaii during Vietnam, so he talks about Pearl Harbor and the uh, the army base that's in Hawaii now all the time. Yeah. He literally can't stop talking about it. <laughs> but that's like the best time of my dad's life, so <laughs> so he can't stop talking about that's it. Fair. All he did was. Smoke a bunch of weed and and uh, talk to pretty girls and basically try as hard as possible to get away with not doing as much work as he could. I mean, that's, that's American dream right there. That's he would, asked for. <laughs> he was in he was in the military from like nineteen seventy three to nineteen seventy six. I think is when he was discharged. No, no, it had to have been earlier than that. So nineteen seventy to nineteen seventy four. When did we end uh, Vietnam? Our involvement ended in 1973. Okay, so then it was... Because he was drafted when he was 18, which would have been 1970. So 1970 to 1974, I think, is when when he was in Vietnam. Well, well, in Hawaii. 
Anyways. Um, in mid-1940, Roosevelt moved the home port of the Pacific Fleet from San Diego to Pearl Harbor mm-hmm. in order to more effectively blunt possible Japanese aggression on the American possessions of Guam and the Philippines. Because why is how a lot closer to those places than San Diego? And I had no idea that we had possession of the Philippines. Yeah, um, we took them in the Spanish-American War in 1898. Weird. Okay. We took them from Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's also when we got Guam, if I remember correctly, but yeah. So at this time, there's, I mean, Guam to this day is still possession of the United States. The Philippines will be granted independence in 1946, so after World War II. Yeah. So. I know that um, Guam has a naval base there. Yeah. I had a friend stationed there during COVID. <laughs> he said it sucked. Because <laughs> he couldn't get to, he didn't get to do any of the cool stuff that you can do in Guam because they were on lockdown all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, by the fall of 1941, Japan was in a situation where it would have to capitulate to American demands to cease its aggression or confront America directly to prevent it from interfering in the Pacific. It's it's time. You have to get you have to shit or get off the pot. So, pursuant to that, on November 26th, 1941, a Japanese strike force led by the aircraft carriers Akagi, Kaga, Soryu, Hiryu, Shokaku, and Zuikaku left its base in the Kuril Islands, bound for Hawaii. Whoa. Now, the Kuril Islands... Let me just get back to that picture I had earlier. The Kuril Islands are up here. They're this little string of islands that kind of comes off the Japanese home islands. Okay. It kind of leads into, like, this little peninsula of Russia. Kamchatka. And to, the, to this day, they're actually disputed between Japan and Russia. Okay. Do a lot of people live there? Um, I don't think they have a. I, I don't think they have a population there anymore. But mostly, it's more for like the offshore economic rights, like fishing and whatever resource extraction you can do from the ocean. So I see. Uh, but anyway, uh, the plan was to launch three waves of air attacks on various targets in the Pearl Harbor area, and was concocted by Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto. You may have heard of Yamamoto. Mm-hmm. He's probably like the most famous Japanese, uh, really military person of the Second World War. Yeah. Um, head of the Combined Fleet. Uh, the fleet was led in person by Vice Admiral Chuichi Nagumo. Mm-hmm. At 7.02 a.m. on December 7th, Privates George Elliott and Joseph Lockhart, radar operators, were at their post, a truck-operated radar station on the north, on the north side of Oahu, when radar detected a flight of 183 planes headed for the island. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Let me give you a picture of Lockhart, because he, he, he becomes important. There's Lockhart. Basic. Yeah. Basic dude. And let me show you. That's that's the type of radar station that they were at. Okay. Very, very, very minimal, but just yeah. all it needs. It just has one job, just detect things. Yeah. Um, and it did its job. Yeah. And they're, like, up here at the top. Okay. Like the very top of the island. Okay. So. And there's 183 of them. And they were they were not, they were preparing for this but not expecting this particular thing. Yeah, that matter. Okay. Um 183 planes headed for the island. Uh, they're about 132 miles away at this point. Okay. So they're on the way there. Lockhart confirmed that the equipment was working correctly, then attempted to call his superior but couldn't get through. Man, yeah. So many, so many of our stories are like. Caught, this happens yeah. because the phones are down, or yeah, radio. At this point, a little bit about Blockhart. 
He's born October 1922 in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. So he's like 19 at this point. He's a young kid. Yeah, he enlisted in the Army in 1940, so like when he was 18, and was assigned to the Army Signal Corps. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, stationed as a radar operator on Oahu. Okay. Um, Elliot attempted to get to through to Private Joseph McDonald at the Intercept Center, which mm-hmm. was kind of like where like all the raid, central radar operations. It was at Fort... Uh, let's see, what was it? The Fort's name. The Fort Shafter Intercept Center. It's like okay. where like, their main radar station was. Okay. Uh, McDonald, uh, born in 1920, uh, and he was the switchboard operator there. Also 19? Yeah. Jeez. Or, no, 21. Okay, yeah. well, still, these are a yeah. bunch of kids. The young guy, yeah. yeah. Um, McDonald, they're just flipping switches and stuff, yeah. and just, they're like, all I did is answer the phone, man. Uh, McDonald was a- unable to assist, because, again, he's just a switchboard guy. Mm-hmm. The radar plotters at the center had gone to breakfast. Well, you gotta eat. Yeah. Um, at that point, the connection cut out. Oh, no. Uh, McDonald notified the only officer he could find, the Effer Upper Far episode, oh, Lieutenant Kermit Tyler. Oh, my gosh. This seems this like is, it's going to be bad. This is our second Kermit. <laughs> yeah. Our first episode was a Kermit, and our 26th episode, also yeah, a Kermit. Full somehow, circle. <laughs> somehow, we've sought out and found the only two real yeah. Kermits in history. Yeah. Uh, there's a picture of McDonald. Okay. Yep. And there's a picture of Tyler. So just Man, like just generic babies. 1940s army pictures. Yep. So, we, we babies. They, uh, ha- they had something to smile about. In later photos in World War II, they, uh, they did not smile. No. <laughs> Uh, Kermit Tyler, he'd been born in April 1913 in Owine, Iowa. Uh, he's, he's a little bit older. Mm-hmm. Uh, joined the Army Air Corps in 1936. The Air Force was not separate at this time. Right, right. part of the Army. Assigned to the 78th Pursuit Squadron in Hawaii, and he worked at, like I said, the Fort Shafter Intercept Center, and was responsible for monitoring and ordering American Air Forces to intercept any unknown aircraft that entered Hawaiian airspace. Okay. So. Makes sense. Yeah. He's a lieutenant, yep. so... He's an officer. Yeah. But he has Reminded of how many movies where, you know, the enlisted guys or the guys who knows what's going on, the officer is just garbage. I think that that's a, a common misconception. I just think of aliens. <laughs> like, the lieutenant is basically just useless. Yeah. 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 So. Uh, Tyler, <laughs> and this may not necessarily be his fault, but he's still the one who F's up. Tyler had only begun his duties at the Intercept Center the day before. Oh, boy. And was inexperienced with operations. He didn't think anything of the report. Which, on one hand, it's like, yeah, he's inexperienced. But also, 183 planes just pop up on radar. Okay, but anyway. Yeah. It gets worse. I, I will say that, like, being a person who interacts with the military on a semi-regular basis, the jobs are they're very very detailed and specific and it takes a lot of time to ramp up i think like you're not immediately going to know exactly what you're supposed to do so yes while he effed up also just consider like it's not as simple as just being like all you got to do is push this button all day long mm-hmm. not that i i know that the, like there's a layer of complexity to everywhere but being in a very critical crucial like people died because of this scenario um on your first day or your second day probably not ideal 
you may feel differently right after I, what I'm about to tell you. Oh, gosh. So, McDonald connected with the radar station again. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time getting a hold of Lockhart, who was greatly concerned about the situation, understandably. Mm-hmm. He's like, there's a bunch of planes. Yeah, there's like 183 planes on my radar, and they're coming right at us. Mm-hmm. McDonald relayed this to Tyler, who assumed that it was an expected flight of B-17s from the mainland. Oh, my gosh. No. It's like, okay, but... Wouldn't B-17s be coming in from the east? Not necessarily. Whereas these planes are coming in from the north? Well, you also have to consider weather. So it's not yeah. it's not always as simple as, like, the shortest distance. Like, sometimes you have to come with weather. Sometimes maybe they're lining up to, you know, land, hmm. depending on how their runway is angled. So there could be a lot of reasons That's why they're true. coming from a an angle that you might not expect. But that many, and it's also, like... you. Yeah, 183 B-17s at the same time? That seems weird, but... Yeah, wouldn't... Yeah, yeah. But also, another thing that they teach you in the Army is Occam's Razor. Whatever is the most, like, realistic, the most reasonable, is probably the thing. Well, see, that's the thing, though. All that stuff I've told you about Japan, this was all... Like, a lot of this was public knowledge. Like, tensions have been building for a while. Yeah. You know? That's fair. Uh, McDonald um, relayed. The, uh, uh, yeah, I said that. Uh, Lockhart requested to speak to Tyler directly. He's like, "Look, bro." And warned him that the planes were headed directly to Oahu. Tyler responded with, "Don't worry about it." In the call. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah. Don't worry. Yes. Yep. And this is where he f's up. No. When McDonald asked that the radar plotter should be recalled, so like, "Hey, go get these guys from breakfast." Mm-hmm. And Wheeler Field notified, which is like the nearby airfield, so they get planes in the air, to, mm-hmm. even just to check this out to make sure, like, hey, you know, better safe than sorry. Mm-hmm. Tyler again said, don't worry about it. Oh, boy. McDonald wanted to contact Wheeler Field directly, bypassing Tyler, but thought it would be futile as he was a private, right. an officer, and didn't want to get court-martialed. Yeah, exactly. So... McDonald, who, who had been in his shift for 14 hours at this point. Oh, my gosh. Uh, his shift ended at 7.45, and he's like, all right, I did what I could. Lockhart and Elliot continued tracking the planes until 7.40, when the radar signal was lost as, as the planes reached Oahu, because it was like they're close enough to the ground that it's like they're just not going to be picked right. up. And they were relieved at 7.45. At 7.48... The Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor began. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I'm going to show you, uh, this was the, yeah, I'll show you that actually at the end. So yeah, uh, the first wave consisted of 183 planes targeting the battleships, the airfields, and the aircraft on the ground. So I think actually, yes. So you see you're kind of like in a layout of Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. So it's like the ships around the Ford Island in the middle. Um, There's like an airfield there. These are like the oil storage tanks around the edges. There's just some shipyards here. The Pacific Fleet HQ is in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. So like, like all these essentially a target, what they would call a target-rich environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So it's all grouped up. There's no air air protection, basically. Yeah, because nobody's scrambled any planes yet. Yeah, because the dumbass in the intercept center said, "Don't worry about it." <laughs> so yeah. They attacked the battleships, the airfields, and the aircraft on the ground. At 8.54, the second wave, consisting of 171 planes, began its attack, targeting additional airfields and aircraft on the ground. 
you see like kind of like the plan of attack here. Like this one on the left is like the first wave. Mm-hmm. And then the one is the second wave. So like there's like other little targets, like other airfields or stations or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they're all just like kind of cycling into Pearl Harbor. Well, I mean, from a tactical standpoint, that's awesome. Like the way that they had planned it yeah. and the fact that they were, you know, about 15 minutes apart. That Well, they came east because they thought, okay... If the fl- if the this- timing was well coordinated, yeah, the- I'll put it that way. I will say it was strategically sound. The well, tactically though, you would want to have one squadron come in fifteen minutes apart because by the time yeah. your radars detect a second one, your radar operators are probably not there anymore because mm-hmm. they're already under attack. Yeah, and then while your fleet is busy, like if you've you know if you've got Trying planes in the air either trying to flee or you have planes in the air attacking yeah. these guys, then you're probably not considering the West until they actually get yeah. to their target. That aspect, yes. But tactically, yes. Strategically, there's some blunders, but I'll get to those. Okay. Uh, the planned third wave was called off, as by that time what remained of the American asset, air assets were in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're like, all right, it's just... We already yeah. we did our job. Yeah. Uh, the attack was over by 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. Total of the American on the American side, six vessels sunk, thirteen damaged. Wow. One hundred ninety one aircraft destroyed, one hundred fifty nine damaged. Two thousand four hundred and three were killed, one thousand one hundred seventy eight were wounded. Wow. Which is typically the opposite of what happens in a like a like your normal battle. Normally you have like twice as many wounded as you do killed. Mm-hmm. So that shows you like how unprepared everybody was. Right. The United States declared war on Japan the following day after Roosevelt's legendary infamy speech. You have to say it like rolling your head because it's how he does it. Like oh. rolls his head, like bobbles his head a little bit. Okay. Um, simultaneous or near simultaneously with the Pearl Harbor attack, like I mean, like shortly after, late like that day, basically, Japan invaded the American possessions of Guam and the Philippines, as well as the British possessions of Malaya, Singapore, and Hong Kong. Thailand was also attacked. Jeez. So this is a massive, coordinated strike against basically everybody else in the Pacific. Yeah, anybody like Europe and yeah. the United States holdings. Yeah. Um, the Netherlands, which like the Dutch East Indies, they eventually are also attacked. Um, so. Wow. So all at once they were like, all right, today, December yep. 8th. December 8th, right? 7th. 7th. Well, December 7th. Depending on which side of the international date line you're on. Oh, true. So those days, basically, they're like, we're pulling the trigger. Let's go. Uh, The Japanese attack, while devastating, was strategically deficient in several ways. They failed to attack the nearby fuel storage tanks, Mm. which, if they had done that, that would have been probably the most strategically devastating part of the attack. Sure, because then... The Pacific Fleet would have no fuel. Right. Until they got more (laughs) from the mainland. That would have taken time. Right. Uh, they didn't attack the submarine base. Okay. They didn't attack the shipyard, where all the ships could be you know, fixed. Mm-hmm. And they didn't attack the Pacific Fleet headquarters, where the admirals were. Wow. Which was like a, like, like, cut off the leadership at the head. Do they... You're gonna wipe out a lot of experienced naval personnel, like, who... Did they look. not know how, what the setup was, potentially? They, w- they wouldn't know. Okay. There's enough reconnaissance and stuff like the like a few days before like they'd sent in i know this is not a pc term they'd sent in what were called midget submarines mm-hmm. basically like submarines like just a few dudes in it mm-hmm. for reconnaissance purposes and it didn't really work out too well like 
A couple of them were sunk. One of them, I think, ran aground. It's actually like the first Japanese POW of the war. Was one of the guys from the midget submarines? He came ashore and was caught by captured by wow locals. I think they're, they're like, "What are you doing, bro?" And he's yeah. like, "Uh, yeah." And, and there would have been like there would have been enough like I'm sure like Japanese agents there who would have been able to like, hmm. you know, work that stuff out. Okay, but yeah. So um, they also attacked when the. Pacific Fleet's aircraft carriers, Saratoga, Lexington, and Enterprise, uh, were out on sea at maneuvers. Oh. So if they had sunk or damaged those aircraft carriers, and trust me, a few months later at the Battle Midway, those aircraft carriers become very important. Mm. So, because they basically wipe out the Japanese aircraft carrier. Like, a lot of those aircraft carriers I mentioned from, from Japan, a lot of them get sunk at Midway. Well, maybe... I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Maybe they didn't know about the maneuvers, and that is a a hell of a plan to have have to hatch and like actually do. And Japan and Hawaii are not very close together, so True. If, even if you have like aircraft carriers and stuff that has carried your fleet out to this mm. point, it's kind of like. We scheduled it. We had like all systems go. There's just nothing That's more true, that we can do. But still. It sucks for the... I mean, like, obviously I'm glad that the Japanese, you know, didn't get more casualties than they did, but um, it just is a fact of the matter. Yeah, it's it's a fact of being able to move that many people in planes at the same time. The fact is, like, they weren't there. Yeah. if they had been, that would have been a lot worse for the Americans. Sure. Um, So there were definitely some ways in which the Japanese attack didn't succeed. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially because, like... A lot of the ships sunk or damaged were battleships, and World War II would prove that battleships were utterly useless. Mm. Uh, battleships, like, they may have been effective somewhat in the early 20th century, mm-hmm. maybe during the First World War. They're kind of obsolete by this point, and World War II definitely shows it. They show that, like, the war shows that aircraft carriers are, like, the future yeah. of naval combat. Mm-hmm. Because you don't even, ha- like, the fleets don't even have to be within sight of each other. Right. You can just have, like, send your bombers out. Send it's, your fighters out. It's much faster. It's cheaper. And it's safer for your own fleet. Right. So, like, yeah, especially, like, uh, the Japanese would experience this. Um, the Germans would experience this mm-hmm. with Bismarck and Tirpitz. They basically just become floating targets. Mm-hmm. Because air, like, air bombing and combat is so superior now that... Okay, well, we found that battleship way over there. Let's just go send our fleet of bombers. Exactly. It's so much cheaper to be able to just say, I only need to send two bombers or squadron of bombers Mm -hmm. out with, you know, a handful of guys there. Yeah. Send them out and they can sink that ship without even, I don't have to get my ship close. Yeah, it's a a floating gun platform, but if you're out of range of the gun platform, it's... Yeah. So, like, yeah, battleships were... Would prove to be useless. Right. So. And very dangerous, very expensive, yeah. very hard to repair. And a lot and, of those, like, misses, like, missing the aircraft carriers, missing the fuel tanks. hmm Japan's whole point was to take everything really quickly, like, kind of kneecap America to bring them to the peace table quickly. Mm-hmm. Japan knew they could not win a prolonged war against the United States. Right, it's just simply not big enough. E- exactly. No matter what they do, they're not going to match the industrial might of the United States. And they know it. So they their whole point was to like scare them into coming to the peace 
table early. And it's way too far away for them to even try to do any sort of yeah. ground game. Yeah, like, there was there were certainly Japanese submarines who patrol the Pacific coast, mm-hmm. and there were a couple, like, random incidents, but, like, U.S. mainland was never a threat. No, no. That would have to be an entire country's worth of onslaught yeah. in order for them to be even... Or they'd have to be so technologically more advanced, like, if Japan got the bomb before we did. Mm-hmm. So... But anyway, uh, the war would, of course, end with the defeat and surrender of Japan in September 1945. An investigation was launched after the attack to determine what went wrong. Mm -hmm. The inquiry absolved Tyler of any wrongdoing, citing that he had been assigned to the intercept center with no training, no experience, and no staff. Oh, okay. Which is true, but also... There should have just been some alarm bell in his head ringing like, you know, really we should just check this out. Just out of an abundance of caution. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know what they say about assuming. Yeah. It's an ass out of you and me. Um, did any of the people that you mentioned before, the radio operators or the... Okay. Yeah, get in that. Uh, Lockhart, the radar operator, was promoted to staff sergeant and awarded the Distinguished Service Medal. Okay. Uh, and later became a lieutenant after attending officer candidate school. And he served the rest of the war as a, in radar. Like, he was stationed uh, in the Aleutian Islands. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, kind of not the most prestigious position, but hey. It's a, it's kind of a cushy gig, though. Yeah. Because you don't get a lot of action in the Aleutian yeah, Islands. Yeah, I mean, the, the Japanese, they did take a few of the Aleutian Islands. Like, some of the very end of the island chain. Um, but it wasn't really a major era, theater of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he later, after the war, he later worked in the ri- private sector. He registered 35 patents. Wow. Which is impressive. impressive. And he died in November of 2012. Oh, wow. So, Man, he was old as hell. Yeah. 92? Uh, 90. Okay. So, McDonald, uh, the soldier who took Lockhart's call, served in various theaters of the Pacific War. Uh, and later worked for Pratt & Whitney, the aircraft manufacturer, after mm-hmm. the war. He died in August 1994. He was posthumously awarded the Army Commendation Medal in 2005. Oh, wow. Yeah. Tyler, having been found absolved of responsibility, continued his military career, retiring from the Air Force in 1962 as a lieutenant colonel. Wow. Now, something I noticed, and I couldn't find, like, the exact dates of his various, like, ranks. Mm Mm-hmm. And I know that sometimes, like, if you expand after, like, during a war, mm-hmm. there's sometimes, like, retraction afterwards, and you're, like, kind of, like, reduced in rank. You mm-hmm. saw a lot after the Civil War, after the First World War. Mm-hmm. Like, so, like, if you stayed, like, you might temporarily be, like, you know, a major general, but you get reduced down to, like, you know, lieutenant colonel mm-hmm. after the war's over. So, so I don't know if this happened. But one of the sources I used was, like, his testimony during... These committee hearings. That was like 1944 or 45. Mm-hmm. Like a few years afterwards. He's listed as a lieutenant colonel there. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find like anything about his rank. So I'm like, so like, was he a lieutenant colonel for like 18 years? He sandbagged it so hard. <laughs> he was just like, or, I'm not taking that. I'm not e- taking the test. Or everybody else was like, mm, let's not promote that guy any further. <laughs> Because he retires, like, when he's, let's see, 62, when he's, like, 49 years old. So he he still could have, like, oh yeah served for longer. So it's like, maybe he saw the, like, man, I have, no matter what I do, I'm never going to outlive this down. 
<laughs> I'm never going to get promoted any higher. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah. yeah, that, that makes so, sense. Uh, but I have no proof for that, but I'm just going with it. <laughs> uh, he later worked as a real estate broker and died in January 2010. He wow. was, he was nearly, he was like 97 years old. Real but, estate developer. Yeah. Somehow do not, does not uh, surprise me. So I will end on this. Colonel W.H. Tetley, uh, commander of the 508th Aircraft Warning Company Signal Corps, commented that, quote, Joseph McDonald performed in an outstanding manner on 7 December 1941 when he manned the AWS switchboard in order to keep the Air Corps duty officer, Tyler, mm -hmm. apprised of the position of the Japanese bomber force. Had that duty officer been able to get his fighter wing airborne, it could have deprived the Japanese of the important element of surprise, which was so much in their favor. End quote. Wow. Jeez. It was so a little I, bit of a dig. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's probably the nicest way to put that. Like, a lot of the sentiments that people had was like, if you had just even shown even an iota of curiosity or initiative or something... Yeah, we would like we would still be attacked. There's no way to avoid that. Like they were already in the air. We could have got our fighters in the air. We could have saved. I mean, forget the material. We could have saved thousands of lives. Uh, yeah. So he definitely effed up. He did. <laughs> yes. Oh. So. Um, as I mentioned on the 25th episode, uh, we'll have a little little segment here where if we have feedback, we'll mention it. If not, we'll just plug another podcast. So, we don't have any feedback because nobody actually listens to the show. Um, <laughs> not true, not true. Lots of people listen. Uh, so, I'm going to plug a podcast I think you would actually like. Uh, it's called Unsung History. Um, kind of taking a look at kind of the lesser known stories in history. Um... A lot of women's history, uh, a lot of LGBT history is in there. Like, little little known stuff, like today, the episode I listened to about today. A little more gruesome, about abortions in the 18th century. Oh, jeez. And I never want to hear the phrase manual abortion ever said again. Because that just sounds horrifying. Yeah. But, besides that, a um, lot, of, lot of good episodes. Um, well done. There's, like, basically the way she, uh, the host sets it up, she... Um, Gives a little bit of background, and then she talks to, like, an expert in that topic or whatever. So, really well done. Go listen to it. Unsug History has the We Have to Up Seal of Approval. We Have um, to Up Seal of Approval. Yes. Another thing I want to mention, uh, our surprise guest for next week. Oh, yeah. Uh, next two next weeks. episode, yes. <laughs> uh, it's one of the people behind the Intelligent Speech uh, conference show event thing it's uh, uh so uh definitely uh can use some backers um so go to kickstarter look up intelligent speech a lot of great podcasters are involved in it uh run it put it together are involved in it however you want to put it but you know just kick in just even just a little bit every dollar counts uh so and um, and also, Cody, let's slip that we have a a guest 
Yes. Our very first guest yes. next next time. Yes. Um, You'll find out who. Yeah. So, but, uh, yeah, intelligent speech. I'm not involved in it because letting me <laughs> anywhere near anything that says intelligent speech is a yeah. no-no because, as you can tell, I can't speak intelligently. <laughs> so, just go. But a lot of people, a lot of collaborators, uh, a lot of amazing history podcasts, uh, specifically, a lot of people who are really cool. And it's available for, like, it's also really accessible, intelligent speeches as yes. an event. So um, it's really important, I think. And even if you're not a history podcaster or you are thinking about becoming a history podcaster, definitely something yeah. to look into as a resource. And I think the Kickstarter is open through the end of November 2022. Yeah. So when this comes out, this will be uh, mid-October. So you still got a month and a half to go do it. Yeah. So go do it. Plenty of time. Yeah. Go kick in a dollar. Go kick in a thousand dollars. Where you want to do it. <laughs> it's all or nothing. So yeah. do it. <laughs> yes. Do it. Do it. Oh, God. Okay. So sources for this episode. Uh, as I mentioned, I uh, looked at the actual proceedings of the Army Pearl Harbor Board that looked into this. The Jeez. testimonies of Joseph Lockhart, Joseph McDonald, and Kermit Tyler. So the actual, like, you can't get more first-hand source than that. The National Park Service, their Pearl Harbor site, they have a whole page there about the Opana Mobile Radar Site, which is the mm-hmm. radar site where a lot of that, or the planes were detected from. Uh, Michael Barnhart's um, Japan Prepares for Total War, The Search for Economic Security, 1919-41, from 1987. Uh, one of the seminal works, uh, Martin Gilbert's The Second World War, from 1989. And Alan Zim, Attack on Pearl Harbor, Str- Strategery, no, Attack on Pearl Harbor, Strategy, Combat Myths, Deceptions, from 2011. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I, um, so I just wanted to say really quick, because I'm not sure if I'll ever have another opportunity to introduce this person into the podcast. So when I was a kid, my parents never owned a home. Um, and when I was a kid, we rented our house and actually my grandparents had rented this house from the same person. And then my parents ended up renting the same house um, from the same person. But his name was um, Colonel Marion T. Evans. And he actually flew, um, he retired as a full bird colonel from Wright Pat, but he flew in World War II and he flew in the Korean War hmm. and uh, tons and tons of missions. I think he had 40 confirmed downs Damn. Um, between the two. He's like an octuple ace. Yeah, so really, really, really incredible, generous man who is like, uh, also like a um, Mason. What is it? Uh, not Free ma- Mason. Uh, not Major Mason, but um, <laughs> Master Master Mason. It was a Master Mason for like si- over six Mason. over sixty mm-hmm. years. I think when he passed away, he passed away in twenty fourteen, and he was um, ninety five. Hmm. So, and he was born in nineteen eighteen. And he's from Ohio, from Leesburg, Ohio. And, uh, yeah, he was just a really incredible guy. And I can't find a whole lot about him. Um, I found his obituary online. Um, but he made kind of a big impression on me when I was a kid because I didn't have any grandpas. Both my grandpas passed away before I was born. Um, and he was kind of like a grandpa. But, like... <laughs> In a really stuffy way. Like, I only saw him every so often. And he always had pistachios and, like, walnuts on his on his coffee table. But as, like, a five or six-year-old, you can't really maneuver a yeah. walnut. You're like, the squirrels eat this. What 
what what yeah. am I supposed to do with this? So, anyways, just a a teeny tiny, uh, just a way to memorialize him and like, you know, remember him as as somebody who was uh, definitely flew under the radar and was uh, was a really really good, probably literally in some cases. <laughs> he was a really good guy. Um, he helped us out like a ton of times. So, That's just cool. wanted to say that. My grandpa served served during World War Two. I have no idea what he did. Uh, I know he served in Europe. You could probably has... look it up. Well, I, re- I requested his army records a few like months ago, and I still haven't heard back from him. But sorry, he so Colonel Evans bo- flew in World War Two, the Korean War, and Vietnam. All wow. three. Man, he lasted a while then. Yeah, he. That, that's at least two decades. He was thirty. He retired after thirty <sighs> years as a full bird colonel. Man. So and he was uh, so he must have been probably twenty. It doesn't say when he retired though. So, anyways, just a just a thing I thought I would say. As a mission next week, special guest. Oh my gosh! The, so we had to record this time. ahead of time. Yeah, it's uh just to get our schedules to sync up. But this is pro- the next episode is probably one of the most funny episodes I think that we've ever recorded. I had a lot of fun. Can you give our listeners a hint as to what it'll be about? Well, I mentioned it at the end of episode 25. That's okay. we recorded it say, next. Say a different hint. <laughs> um, I said what it was last time. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, listeners, uh, if you're pulling up this episode expecting the <laughs> cadaver synod, because that's what I said at the end of episode 25, eh, wrong. <laughs> you know, I, I was... I was... I was incorrect. I can't say those words. Oh my gosh! uh, No, but yeah, I was I was wrong. Uh, So yeah, because we we recorded twenty seven before twenty six because schedules and stuff. Schedules and stuff. That's fine. Yeah. So next time, I assure you, (laughs) is the cadaver synod, and and it's day after Halloween, so still in that season. Even though technically at that point Thanksgiving season has begun. So, but um. So, get Everson on 27 next time. Listen. For the next few weeks leading up to our one-year anniversary, we'll be running a poll on our Twitter account for you, the listeners, to have your say about who the biggest effort-upper was from our first year. How it works is like this. We've randomly seated our 26 effort-uppers into a tournament-style single elimination bracket. Cody and I will discuss each matchup and decide who we want to win the matchup. This is where you come in. Before the polls close on October 25th, just comment on our Twitter account with your top three F-Reppers. They don't have to be ranked or anything like that. Just name three that you liked or were entertained by or that you think had the biggest impact. Cody and I will take those votes, add them to our own, and determine the winner of each matchup. If we disagree on a winner and there's a tie, we'll coin flip to determine the outcome. So get your votes in by October the 25th so we can be included in the tally which you'll hear on a special episode on November 2nd. We'll give a shout-out to everyone who voted, so be sure to comment with your I4Uppers. Please be sure to check out our other projects, The Drunken Pawn, where we play board games and drink on YouTube, uh, Attack of the Final Girls, my sister podcast project with my lovely pod wife, Juliet, where we talk about horror movies. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at up no spaces. Be sure to rate and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And this is We We Have Have Up. Up.